I want to get to what I'm really excited about before we get to the sermon. So last Sunday was Easter Sunday, and we had our offering. We took our Easter offering, and that offering goes to, to the three missions that we support, uh, Brazil Water Filters, Haiti Feed a Child for One Year, and Vietnam Wheelchairs. Actually, that should say $75. That's an old one. So far, church, you have given $63,107. That's a blessing. And there's the breakdown. So 249 wheelchairs, 113 water filters, and 124 children in Haiti fed for one year. All thanks to you. So thank you, church. And then, so we took a little break, and now we're back in our Book of Revelations, uh, Revelation Sermon Series. And today, we're looking at the fifth church that Jesus had the disciple John write a letter to. This is the fifth church, and this is the church in Sardis. Now, I have a map up here, and on this map, if you can, if you can see... Uh, this is what's called the Asia Minor area, which is now the country of Turkey. We started in Ephesus, we went up to Smyrna, then we went up to Pergamos, and then we came down, so we went up that Mediterranean coast. Now we're down to Sardis. Sardis is about 50 miles east of Smyrna and 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. So I was kind of thinking, um, if we were Smyrna, Sardis would be like uh, Zanesville, uh, about that far. And... Um, so that's where Sardis is on the map. Now, Sardis was a city that was, like all the ones that we've been looking at, full of paganism, lots of paganism. But Sardis also had a small Christian community, not, not very big, it was small, and they weren't well-rooted in the Word. And prior to this writing, that, John, that, that uh, Jesus, uh, the, the address that Jesus wrote to the church, uh, gold was discovered in a river that ran through the city. And so that made Sardis one of the uh, wealthiest cities in the Asia Minor area. Um, And then they were also a major producer in textiles, which was uh, uh, yarn and fabrics, as well as jewelry making. So all this stuff came out of the city of Sardis. Um, And then a couple other interesting things about Sardis is it was on a, like a 1,500-foot plateau, and it was was a naturally well-secured city because because it was surrounded by rocky cliffs. And there was basically like one road that kind of led into the city. And so if you were an enemy nation, it would be a little hard to get to Sardis to conquer them. Um, However, Sardis wasn't real big on keeping the security up in their city. They they let their guard down, not once but twice. The uh, country of Persia and then the country of Greece. Both of these countries had invaded Sardis and conquered them. And at the time of this writing, the city walls were in ruins. So there there wasn't a whole lot left to the city. As a matter of fact, the major part of the city that had been conquered twice, they had kind of rebuilt at a lower level. And so there was kind of like two two levels of the the city. And they were trying to rebuild and, and, and restructure things. And then Jesus comes and has John write this letter to them. So I know that the church... Right? Like this is a, we call this building the church that we meet in. And there's many churches in our community. And there's millions of churches worldwide, right? Buildings that we meet in. 
But really, the church is not just a building. The church is made up of people worldwide, right? We all make up the church. The church is the body of Christ. And, and we have different denominations and different theological differences, and, 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 and we do things a little bit different than maybe our Methodist brothers and sisters or our Baptist or our Catholic or our, you know, uh, maybe Pentecostal or whatever. We all do things a little bit different, and, and you know what? I think that's okay because there's different flavors, so to speak, that people are more attracted to. As long as you're pointing people to Jesus, that's what counts, right? As long as you're theologically correct and you're pointing people to Jesus. See, human beings are always going to have these differences. But the church is made up of people. And in these seven letters that Jesus has John write to these churches, it is the lives of the people that make up the church that Jesus is inspecting. He's inspecting the lives of the people in the churches. And in chapter 1 of Revelation, it says, you know, Jesus, I'm the one who holds the seven stars in my right hand, and I walk amongst the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars were the pastors of each of these churches, and the lampstands were the churches. And he, and he says, I walk through here, and I'm inspecting what's going on, and you're going to get a report. And each letter is addressed to the angel of that church. Now, the angel is the pastor. And so, I would like for you to address... No, never mind. <laughs> but the pastor is referred to as an angel. And so, here's the deal. This is, this is the serious part of it. The, the, these letters are addressed to the pastor... And the pastor is the one who is accountable to the spiritual well-being of the people in his church. That's, what, that's the main crux of these letters. Like, I was in your church, and here's what I saw. And now, pastor, you're going to get a letter from me. So here's, here's the deal. This is what I would like to encourage, and I, I do this periodically. I'm constantly evaluating myself. And, and if you're new here today, then what, what, what I'll do, and you, and you like the message, and, you'll, and you, you like this particular church, then I would encourage you to go to our website, vineyard05.com, and, and look at the, you know, watch the rest of these sermons, get caught up where we're at. But I would like for us to, to, to uh, evaluate, like, like say to yourself, seriously, ask yourself, which one of these churches best represent me? And maybe you're in a good spot, right? Maybe you can say, well, I was that one church for a while, but now, thank goodness God got a hold of me, and I'm here. Or, or maybe you're in a good spot, but, but you see yourself kind of slipping into another spot. And so, so this self-evaluation, and maybe you do it in a life group setting. Maybe you, you have somebody that you look up to, and you're having coffee, and you're just, you're just talking things out, and things are starting to surface, and you're like, you know, I, 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 maybe I need to get back into the Bible. I see myself slipping into some things, you know. Self-evaluation is a good thing. And see, see, these are churches, or there are churches, and there are people, the people that make up these churches around the world that fall into one of these seven categories that Jesus is writing these letters to. And maybe they don't sit right in one of these categories, but maybe they were once there, and they've come out, and they're in a healthy spot right now. 
right? Like, they're not, not all churches around the world are doing bad. Most of these, every church that Jesus addressed had something that he needed to address. That's why he was inspecting them. And individuals, though, from time to time, we can slip in and out of these different uh, uh, reports that Jesus was giving these churches. So it's good to evaluate ourselves. And, and here's the deal. Bottom line is this. We cannot get complacent in our walk with Jesus. Once we begin thinking that I'm good, you know, or, or, or maybe, maybe our Bible reading was, was five times a week, and now it's three, and now it's one, and now we don't even read it. Well, that's where you do an evaluation, and you're like, I need to get back into my Bible reading. Maybe you were coming to church every Sunday, and now the weather's getting warm, and it's, you know, when I feel like it, and I'll wait till September. Well, I guarantee you, your spiritual life is going to slip. It's just it's how it works. It's supernatural. It's how it works. So from time to time, it's healthy to evaluate our lives against the Word of God. The Word of God is a mirror that reflects ourselves to us. It, it, it shows us what we are really like. And in chapter 1, there is a very detailed description of Jesus, what he looks like, what he looks like that side of heaven, not what he, looks like when he, not what he looked like when he walked the earth. And, and each letter starts out with a part of Jesus' character or description from chapter 1, and he uses that part of his character because that's the part of his character that he's going to use to address the church. And so we can get right into it in Revelation chapter 3. We're just going to, we're going to kind of go verse by verse here. So here's what he writes. Chapter 3, and this is, this is the first part of verse 1. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. The one who has the sevenfold spirit of God is Jesus. In the New King James, he's here's the deal, he's identifying himself as the all-wise and the all-powerful God. I, I know everything, I see everything, I hold everything in the palm of my hand. Now in the New King James, uh, it reads this, the one who has the seven spirits of God. So the seven spirits of God, the sevenfold spirit of God. And, and we'll see this, this same verbiage used to describe Jesus later on in the book of Revelation. Nowhere else in the Bible, just in Revelation. And so here's, here's the deal. We're going to kind of look at this for just a second. But, but I, I want to kind of put this little caveat in there. I'm always leery of people who are constantly connecting numbers with things in the Bible, or later on we're going to look at a specific color, and, and I, I think we need to be really careful about that, because we don't want to make the number the focal point. You know what I'm saying? Um, and, and the reason that I'm a little leery about that, like, like, let's just say we're talking about the number five, right? And then somebody says to me, you know, well, number five represents this in the Bible, and that happened to you five times today, so that must mean this is what's going to happen. I don't, I, I'm very leery of that. And also because there's, there's a lot of new age and there's a lot of cultish teachings out there that, that really kind of hone into that stuff. But God does use numbers and he uses colors and he uses, in the Old Testament when Moses was building the tabernacle for a place for God to dwell when his people were moving through the wilderness, God was very specific 
with lengths and fabrics and, and, and um, uh, um, objects and, and things of that nature. Uh, and he was very specific. He's very detailed-oriented. And there was numbers and colors and things that represent different things. And, and all of this stuff, when you, when you break it down and look at it and study it, it all points to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. And so the one with the sevenfold spirit, the one with the seven spirits of God, the, in the Bible, the number seven represents perfection and completion. So that would be the perfect number to use for Jesus. So that's what we're getting at. The focal point is Jesus, but he is the one with the seven spirits of God. And also, in the book of Revelation, Revelation is the fulfillment of prophecy, Old Testament prophecy. The fulfillment of everything the prophet said is in the book of Revelation. And so, this very same description was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Listen to this in Isaiah chapter 11. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Now, David is King David, and Jesus came from King David's family line. So out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So there it is. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the forces of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. That is Jesus. That is the Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, prophesying of the Messiah to come. So the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. That is the Holy Spirit, also known as the sevenfold Spirit of God. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. The sevenfold Spirit of God. Now, the fear of the Lord means that we are to be in reverence of, of him, in awe of him, not cower and afraid of him. The fear of the Lord means that we are to hold him in the highest of esteems. So Jesus fully possesses all the attributes of the Holy Spirit. And those of us who have invited him into our lives, we also possess all the attributes of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit lives within us. The moment we invite Jesus into our lives, his Holy Spirit comes and invades our lives. And that is how a person can repent and turn from their wicked ways. Because of the convictions brought by the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural thing, and, and that is the only thing that can get a person to repent 180 degrees and turn towards Jesus. And so the rest of verse 1, so let's read this. The sevenfold Spirit of God and the seven stars. Now here's what he says to the church. We're just going to read the rest of verse 1. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. That's his message to the church in Sardis. <laughs> now, in five of the seven churches Jesus addressed with these letters, 
He starts out with something that he commends them with. I know these things you've been, you've been doing. You've been really great in this. You've, you've done well in this area. You've done well in that area. But this I hold against you. In five of the seven churches, he has something to commend them for. But Sardis is one where he has nothing good to say. Now, the last letter we read, he says, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. So at least Sardis, you know, <laughs> not that bad, according to the last letter we read. But I know all the things you do, and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. There's nothing, there's no spiritual life in this particular church. And we'll see here in a little bit that there were still a faithful few that were there. There were a few in the church that were on fire for God. But what was dead that needed a wake-up call from Jesus? Like, my question is this. If he had nothing good to say at all, then were they ever spiritually alive? I, I, I don't think so. And, and here's the other thing. There is no indication of persecution or, or uh, uh, trouble from outside forces, as we had seen in some of the other churches that, that, that we, we've looked at already. Neither was there any heresy, heresy from within or sexual immorality or idolatry. These are all things that Jesus addressed with these other churches, serious wickedness that he, he said has taken root in your church. And so here's the take that we're going to look at this. In, 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 in thinking about our current culture, and in my studies in this, this is what we came up with. Sardis, this church, had compromised the truth of God by being the perfect, non-offensive church. They didn't want to offend anybody. So they didn't preach a message that was going to be offensive. They probably had carnivals and, and all kinds of festivities and things going on, and the, maybe the community would bring their children and stuff, and yeah, this is good. On the outside, you look good, but in the inside, you're spiritually dead, is what Jesus said, right? Like, when I read this, okay, I could, this is not our church, but I'm not going to use any other churches as an example, so I will use ours as a hypothetical example. Think of our church, right? Uh, the Easter offering. Uh, we have the clinics in the community. We have, with the first Wednesday night of the month, this place, there are so many people here from the community, the medical clinic, pregnancy, now our bicycle computer repair. People know that this church is there for them. We have our, our extravaganza family Easter thing. We have our family Halloween party, our community festival. We do a lot in the community. So, so like, but if we were spiritually dead in here, we would be a good example of that, right? You look good from the outside. Something that tells me that we're not spiritually dead is a part of our service that I will not compromise on, and that's our ministry time at the end. Because God's Holy Spirit speaks to us, and the Holy Spirit is alive in here. So we're not spiritually dead, but that would be a good example, right? I think Sardis was a non-offensive church. They didn't want to preach a message that would cause any kind of friction. Outwardly, they looked good, but inwardly, they were void of all spiritual life and power. And let's, let's just, let's be honest here for a minute. 
far too often as Christians, we are afraid of offending somebody because of our faith. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a family member. We don't want to offend anybody, so we, we water things down or we keep it to ourselves. And some churches in today's cultural climate do not want to offend. They've compromised the truth of God's word. And, and, and here's the thing with this. This is where that tension, the vineyard talks about this tension, and it's, 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 it's a vineyard distinctive of the already here and the not yet. The kingdom of God is already here. It's broken in, but it has not yet come in its fullness. And there's tension in that. And there's tension as a Christian when I read the scriptures and there's something that, that says to me, Chip, you, you really ought to watch out how you're living in this area. Right? You ever read some scriptures and you're like, ooh, that's me. Do you hurry up and turn the page or do you say, God, help me deal with this. Help me get this out of my life so I can be the person you want me to be. And there's tension in that. If there's no tension in your Christian life from time to time, I would challenge you in that. Because there ought to be. There ought to be things that you're reading in the Bible where you go, you know what, God? I think you're speaking to me. And, and whatever it is, I, 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 I need your help. Or maybe it's like, God, I, I kind of disagree with this passage right here. Can you help me understand why your word says this? Because it's that tension that makes us a stronger Christian, that makes our spiritual life a little bit stronger and grounded. Amen? And here's the thing. When we compromise our faith, it leaves room for all types of wickedness to take root and grow, leaving us spiritually dead for the gospel of Jesus. And here's the thing, it doesn't happen overnight. It happens gradually. And it happens so gradually that we don't even notice it until it's too late. We think everything is going along just fine, and then we're like, whoa, this isn't good. How did I wind up here? Now, the Apostle Paul, he wrote most of the New Testament. He wrote these letters to these churches he established, and one of the letters... Uh, was to the church in Ephesus. And there was a young man that he had kind of raised up as a pastor. His name was Timothy. And Timothy pastored at Ephesus. And he writes these two letters to Timothy. And in the second one, 2 Timothy chapter 3, he writes this. In the beginning, in, in starting in verse 1 through 4, he gives all kinds of descriptions of people. We're not going to get into that, but I, I, I would encourage you to read it. And then he ends it with this in verse 5. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly Stay away from people like that. That was Paul's warning to a young pastor. Stay away from people like that. Timmy, Timothy, here's the deal. Because at first, it's much easier. When we compromise our faith, there's no challenge in that. There's no tension in that. There's no internal struggle with that. And at first, it feels a little easier. But I'm telling you, church, we need to have some tension. We need to struggle with the scriptures. We need to allow that God to, to, to change us and challenge us and teach us in that way. Otherwise, I would, I, would, I would wonder, like, where are you at in your faith? 
And, and, and for people that, that, just like this, Paul said, stay away from them because their life will affect you more than you will them because at first it's easier. And so then verse 2 in, in, in chapter 3 in Revelation, Jesus tells the church to wake up. And there's an explanation point after that. I don't think he just said, hey, you better wake up. He said, wake up. Now, now here's the thing. We'll read that passage in a minute. Watchfulness and staying alert is a common theme in the Bible. It's all over. It's in the Old Testament. It's all in the New Testament. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do five verses here real quick from the New Testament. First, Matthew 24, Jesus said, you too must keep watch. For you do not know what day your Lord is coming. Ephesians chapter 6. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Colossians chapter 4. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and thankful heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Be on guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. And 1 Peter chapter 5. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. Uh, I think we need to stay alert. Wake up. Stay awake. Don't fall asleep at the wheel in your Christian walk. So let's read the rest of this, this passage here, starting in verse 2. If I had it in me, I would yell it so you would jump. But he says, wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. What if, what if Jesus said that to you? Woo-hoo-hoo. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Wake up. Church, you, you're, you're sleeping on me, he's saying. The way to strengthen what little remains to get back to what they first heard and believed, to repent and to turn back to Jesus, is to get into God's word and allow the Holy Spirit to teach, correct, prepare, and equip them for what they had originally set out to do in Jesus' name. And I wonder if they even got some traction when they originally set out to do that. Otherwise, Jesus would say, when you first started, you did this. But he didn't even say that. So I wonder... So we too, church, this means us too, we must be willing to look at the Word of God like a mirror as it exposes us for who we really are. And it brings the conviction that draws us closer to Jesus. Again, if you don't want to face some of those tensions or some of those struggles or maybe some of those convictions that the Holy Spirit is trying to bring, then just keep your Bible closed And you'll be like the church in Sardis. But if you want God to challenge you, you know, being a Christian is not an easy life because we need to stay alert. But look, later on in 2 Timothy chapter 3, here's what Paul told Timothy. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. 
Now, the best thing about the Bible is if it's in there once, it's going to be in there again. So, Chip, I don't know if I really believe that. Well, fine. It's already up there. It's in Hebrews 2. Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is alive and powerful. This is the only book that is alive. This is the only book that can stir us spiritually and bring conviction. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. If you're struggling in life, if you need an answer for something, get in the word. Everything is in there. And then, and, 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 and here's the, the deal. The good news is, not all was lost in the church in Sardis. In verse 4, yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So Jesus is saying, listen, the clothes you guys are wearing, your spiritual clothes are filthy. And I think because you've watered down the gospel, you're, you're, you're afraid to preach the truth. And the New King James reads this, you have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. So it appears that there's still a faithful few in the church that Jesus is like, I, I, there's something here I can work with. And here's the deal. Those were the ones that Jesus deemed worthy to walk with him dressed in white. So here's another thing. There's, there's, you know, there are colors. In the tabernacle, there were different colors used, and they all pointed to Jesus. But white clothing is mentioned in Revelation quite a few times. And it is often in reference to our eternal clothing. We are going to wear white robes, white garments, I'm assuming that's all the time. I'm not too sure. We, we might get to change our clothes every now and then. I'm hoping to have like a bit of a garden, right, Ivana? So I'm going to need something to keep my white robe. I don't know. I, I don't know how that works. I don't know how it works. But white robes are in reference to our eternal clothing as Christians. And white in the Bible is in reference to purity, innocence, and cleanliness. That's why it's white. It's, it's, there's nothing, it's probably the brightest of whites. We, we, we probably have never seen a fabric this white. It's so bright. White in the Bible is also used as a festive color. Because in the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're gonna, we'll get into all of this, but when we get taken up in the rapture, I like to believe it's pre-tribulation, but it could be mid, could be, I don't know, doesn't matter as long as it happens. When we get caught up, we will partake in what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb, a great banquet with Jesus, and we will be wearing white robes. It's a, it's a festive moment. And Jesus is saying to the faithful few in Sardis that one day, the few of you left in the church will walk with me dressed in white as you are now worthy of eternal honor and celebration. That's what he's saying to them. The rest of you are defiled. Your eternal garments are filthy. Now, 
in verse 5, I believe is a promise for all believers everywhere. Um, from the time of this writing up until now and beyond. Often in some of these letters, we use, we use some of these verses in like our, our call to salvation or, or, or something like this right here. Because Jesus is addressing this specific church. But then he says in verse 5, all who are victorious. He, he addresses the faithful few in the church in Sardis. And then he says, all who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life. But I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Anyone who is victorious. In the New King James it says, to he who overcomes. Well, what that means is being victorious overcoming as a, as, as a believer, is it, it means that you fought the good fight. You allowed the scriptures to convict you and to strengthen you and to teach you and to equip you. And you did your best. You might have some things that are dragging you down every now and then, or some things that you fall victim to, whatever, but you allow God's word to teach you and equip you and prepare you for what is to come. Not just here on the earth, but what is to come for eternity. Jesus says, you will be dressed in white. Your name will be written in the book of life. It's often also referred to as the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb is Jesus. Now, this book is mentioned in the Bible just a few times. There's some other books. God is very meticulous. He keeps record of everything. I actually find it... It's not the most riveting, but I kind of like reading it. When you go into, is it Leviticus and Numbers, where there's just names and names and names and names and names. But what if your name was in there? And if you keep reading it, every now and then, every now and then it highlights a group of people or a certain name. It's like, whoa, this guy did something great. His name is forever written in the scriptures. God keeps meticulous records. And so there's this book of life. Now, in Revelation chapter 20, the book of life is also mentioned, but it's mentioned for those whose names are not in the book. And that is, and we'll, we'll dig into that later, but that is called the great white throne judgment. And, and as believers, we go through what's called the Bema seat judgment of Christ. We get judged by Jesus for what we did here on this earth as believers. But then your denial of Jesus is what judges your life at the end and your name is not in that book. But then this book is also mentioned in uh, the, the uh, uh, Old Testament prophet Daniel. Mentions it in uh, chapter 12, verse 4. And then even the Apostle Paul mentions it to, in, to uh, the church in Philippi in Philippians uh, chapter 12, verse 4 for Daniel, and Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. Uh, Daniel is talking about some end times prophecy, and he mentions the book of life. And, and Paul is talking about some people who are doing some good works, some good deeds in Philippi, and he says their names are written in the book of life. And Jesus tells us in this verse, in verse 5 here, that everyone who is victorious, everyone who lives a life worthy of salvation in heaven will have their names written in that book of life. 
And, and if you're, you're sitting here wondering, I wonder if my name is in that book. Well, probably just the fact that you're wondering means that it is. Because you're striving to have your name in that book, right? As a follower of Jesus. The only way to not have your name in that book is to deny Jesus. Deny him. Deny his works. Deny his power. De- deny the Holy Spirit. Deny Jesus. Now here's the thing. Those whose names are written in that book, they will be clothed in white and Jesus will never erase their names from that book. That's the promise. To all who are victorious, to all who overcome, to all who do their best to fight the good fight here on this earth, your name is written in that book. And he will announce before God in heaven that we are his before God and his angels, that we are his. And listen to this. He said this in Matthew chapter 10. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. That's a pretty strong statement. So, what does that mean to acknowledge Jesus publicly? Do I have to like wear a sign and a, and a cardboard thing? And does everybody need to know? Well, I think for starters, it means that you are part of a community of believers. Right? You start there. Join a church. Start there. Become a part of a community of believers. Become a part of a life group here at this church. We're, we're, that is where the nitty-gritty gets, gets taken care of. That, that is where you find a close-knit group of friends at this church... And that is where you find your 2 a.m. friend, the friend that will be there for you in the middle of the night at all times. And then, you know, what else do we do? We share the good news of Jesus. We share our faith. We share our testimony. We share the things that God has done in our lives with our coworkers, with our friends, with our neighbors, with our family. Because the things that God has done for you, your story, your testimony, that will speak volumes to somebody more than any scripture that you can pepper their way. Because, let's face it, people don't really want to hear scripture if they're not believers. They, they want to hear something that has some weight to it. You mean God did that for you? You mean your marriage wasn't very good and you, you prayed and prayed and you, 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 you know, God, God restored your marriage? God brought your son or your daughter up out of that and Really? I wonder if he can do that for me, too. You know, I, I used to always wonder, like, like when I share a story with somebody who's not a believer, I always have this thought, what are they thinking late at night when they go home? Are they thinking about that? Are they thinking about Jesus? Are they thinking about a changed life? Are they thinking, I wonder if God can do that for me, too? I have to believe that the Holy Spirit, seeds were planted, and the Holy Spirit is working in that person's life. So, so we share our faith. We share our testimony. That's what it means to publicly acknowledge Jesus. If Jesus is real to us, then others need to know how real he is. Publicly acknowledging Jesus and his works. But if we openly deny our relationship with him, he will deny knowing us to his father. He'll say, I I didn't know you. There's other references to this in the Gospels. Depart from me. I I didn't know you. So, in closing, 
Here's the lesson that we can learn from the church in Sardis. I think the bottom line is we cannot get complacent with our faith. We cannot be afraid of the challenges and the tensions that the gospel brings. We don't need to hit people over the heads with our Bibles. But if you feel something welling up inside of you to share something with a non-believer, then, you, you know, do it. What's the worst that can happen? They could say, not for me. But you planted a seed, I promise. And we cannot compromise our faith for fear of offending someone. That, that to me, is, is pretty close to denying Jesus. I'm just not going, I'm afraid they're not going to receive what I want to tell them. Well, I, I used to always start it out like this. Hey, you know, here's what worked for me. And, and I read this in the Bible, and then I kind of did it, and it worked. I started it out like that. This, you know, it worked for me. Maybe it'll work for you. And we, and we must always be alert to where we are in our faith with Jesus. Where are we at? And am I where I was six months ago? Or have I challenged myself to where I'm, I'm doing better now? And I'm no longer struggling with that issue I was six months ago. I'm, I'm doing good. Or have I, have I slipped in, in areas? See, we must be willing to allow others to speak into our lives as well. We must allow others that we respect to hold us accountable and to allow the scriptures to challenge us, teach us, and correct us when needed. And by doing so, we will remain alert and prepared to do the good things that Jesus is calling us to do. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I, I thank you for just your word. I thank you for these letters that you wrote to these churches. And, and, and some of them, they're not things to brag about. The church in Sardis didn't have anything to brag about. They got a letter from Jesus, and it was not a good report. But he said, here's the thing, guys. Here's what you need to do. Turn back to me. It's never too late, is what Jesus is saying. And that's what I'm thankful for. Jesus is a, is a God of do-overs. He's a God of forgiveness. He's a God of grace and mercy. And even when we've, we've made the biggest mess up ever, he is so gracious to us. There may be consequences, but at least, you know what? Here's the deal. I would rather Jesus walk with me through the consequences of my actions then deny him and deal with those consequences apart from him. And so I thank you for that, God. I thank you for your word that teaches us, challenges us, brings that tension that is healthy. And in the end, we can give you all the praise because of our testimony of what you have done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.